You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. This Digital Noise episode also has a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. Digital Noises, back on the air. I'm Chris, not Sherlock Cox. The reasons for that will become evident as this episode goes on. Joining me in the studio is wild man, John Golson. What's up? Arooga! Arooga! <laughs> I didn't have my soundboard up, I guess. I don't I have it either. One of those yeah. things that used to, the, the spin things that make the neck cranking sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. don't see those anymore. Those See, are like the I, original fidget spinners of their day. So back in my days on Spill.com, we used to do the show called The League of Extremely Ordinary Gentlemen that was kind of a mass people podcast with Mm -hmm. lots of people there at once. And I got a hold somewhere, I don't remember where I got, like the soundboard that was a hardware soundboard. So it was like a bunch of buttons you could press physically to create the sounds on it, you know, of like, but you could program whatever sounds you wanted on it. I was like, ooh, I'm going to do this and be like more like a radio show. And that goes down in history of being the most disliked episode (laughs) of that show we ever did. And people were like, Jesus Christ, Chris, put down the soundboard. So Yeah, it was. I remember that show. It was a little chaotic to listen to for me a little bit too uh i think for for a lot of the super fans they liked having all those voices and personality in one place at once but i i get overwhelmed <laughs> i'm just <laughs> i yeah i think any any show that has over like i think i think four you roll the dice i write like three is is manageable four you roll the dice and anything beyond four is like it can get chaotic. Yeah, on our screener squad on the site proper, we have a maximum of four. When we started, mm-hmm. it was five, and I quickly realized this is not going to work. <laughs> five is too much. It's tough. Uh, yeah, I can handle four, but we now that we have a system. But two is the best, like with Digital Noise, right here with Wild Man John Golson. I can't make a oh, cat noise like... Your cat is sitting right behind you, by the Your way. cat is sitting behind me. He's kind of fading into the boxes, though, because he's so white. Oh, yeah, he does that. He just fades in and out of reality. It's just a thing. I just Cats. hit him. You got to slap him on the side twice, and he locks into our plane. <laughs> that does sound like cats in general. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some movies. We got a bunch to talk about this week, the first of which is a twofer from Synapse Films of one movie, which is the their secondary, like the one like, ah, you know, it's on here too if you want it, and one which is their big cover mm. release. And I thought the secondary one was much better. But the movies in question are Suckers and Six Days in Roswell. Suckers being 
the primary release. Both of these films are directed by Roger Nygaard, who has probably worked more as a producer, I guess, but he is best known for directing the the Trekkies documentaries, which mm-hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, I like them too. Uh, and both these films, you can see elements of his style there. The big attraction for Suckers is probably... Well, it's probably the cast, such as they were, even though they're kind of dated at this point. Daniel Benzali, who is uh, a a legendary heavy in movies, kind of plays the the bad guy, the the owner of the uh, used car company here. He's probably was very famous for Daniel Boschko's show Murder One, playing like a sort of dark attorney on there. Uh, we won a Golden Globe Award for it. But he's probably the big star here. I mean... I think the sell is... I think the reason why they put suckers on the cover is Lori Laughlin. I think with her being in the news, I think that was that was the mark. I, I have to guess that was the marketing decision there. I mean, she's not in this movie a whole lot Mm -hmm. and um i forgot how cute she used to be Jeez, she's adorable in here to the point where i was like oh i forgot that she's really a fucked up human being but uh this is not 1980s used cars with kurt russell which is much better than this but also not really that great of a film but it is a movie that's trying to go for sort of kind of sort of i don't know i don't want to say clerks but you know a couple days in the life of a bunch of assholes who work on a used car lot where it gets most interesting is probably when it gets into the, I'm trying to remember the name of the movie. Vin Diesel was in it as like a bunch of people who are being told to like, just be, do whatever they can to sell stuff. Oh, uh, Boiler Room. Yeah. Boiler Room or Glengarry Glenn Ross with this boss who's teaching them how to be, just put all morality to the side and how to sell cars that the, the customer is the bad guy and you should do anything you can to fuck them out of all of their money. Because in his world, it is morally acceptable to do that. And the main character, Louis Mandalore, Bobby here, who was in my big fat Greek wedding and the sequel, the film presents him at first as kind of, oh, he's a nice guy. Like, eh, I mean, he's not a very great actor, so he has a hard time pulling off. He just seems like an asshole right from the beginning. But he owns a lot of money to these loan shark guys, you know, these two bruiser dudes. Uh, so he goes in to get a job here, and he meets a variety of colorful characters, which I, I think on the whole, they, this film does a pretty good job at giving them just enough character character stuff where they are separate characters. They do have each one has certain things you know about them that are either interesting or a little too rote. This comes to kind of a predictable ending for this kind of film, turning it into somewhat of a crime movie. But at the end, it definitely felt like one of those films I'm going to go years from now. I think I saw that. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't liking this very much. I think it's crass. I think one of the things you, you're talk, you talked about where he, it seems like they're trying to make him a likable guy, but I think they they undercut that so early on by making him already involved with like organized crime and owing money to like the mob and stuff, and it, it automatically. And then one of his first scenes is arguing with his wife. It it he's a hard sell as sort of a protagonist. I think the movie overall has like kind of a it's sleazy. It feels yeah. it feels sleazy, and it doesn't feel it doesn't feel knowingly sleazy. It feels like uh, it's supposed to be like fun sleazy or like 
like, ah, this is this is what's secretly going on at your local used car place. Isn't this funny? And it's like it's kind of trashy. Um, and sad. And I, I, yeah, and I think the crime stuff makes it somehow worse because it's like not only is it just like unscrupulous used car dealerships, but it's also like there there's like there's like crime stuff in it. It's it. I didn't like this movie. I didn't like the mix of things that it had going for it. It did feel very nineties in a specific way of like that sort of being a movie that seemed to be both post Kevin Smith and post Quentin Tarantino, like kind of rolled into one where it's like, I'm going to make a job place comedy and it's going to have colorful mobsters. It's sort of like, okay. Like that's um, very much a product of its time. Uh, Yeah. Weird. Like also weird. Like the humor in it, weirdly crass, like alternately like racist or misogynistic and like really, um, in really gross ways. Um, not that there's like wonderful, beautiful ways to show that, but there's ways that that happens where this feels purposeless. Like jokes at the expense of things feel purposeless. They, they don't feel like they have any greater point to make other than. Um, other than to just be gross, I, yeah, I to be shocking. Yeah, yeah, I did not. I did not enjoy suckers. Uh, I <laughs> I did not like it at all. I thought it was. I, I, it was, I have not seen a movie in a while that I thought was like trashy, and I, I kind of found yeah. this trashy. I I agree with you completely. I I didn't enjoy it. I will say the next time I go to buy a used car, I might pop this in beforehand because <laughs> this is a laundry list of the tricks that used car dealers use that to what I've read are actually accurate or based on, no, this is really the stuff that they do. And a lot of stuff I didn't know. And if anything I enjoyed about it, it was that in the whole like, oh, this is interesting. I should be taking notes, <laughs> you know, but it's not enjoyable. No one is likable. It's mean spirited as hell. Yeah. They just don't, the ending feels really convenient. It's just not a very good movie, but it has a cult following, apparently, which it does feel like the kind of film that would. And it does have high points in it. There's moments that were like, OK, this was a funny bit of script dialogue or, or interchange between characters that I liked. But often those things don't really go anywhere. There are some extra features here. There's a commentary with the uh, Roger Nygaard, Joe Yanity, who was an actor and co-writer, cinematography, Nathan Hope and the composers. There's uh, about two minutes of deleted scenes with the daughter of Bobby and Donna, who was completely cut out of the film. There's raw takes, seven and a half minutes of those, uh, which is just the performance, but the scenes go on a little bit longer. There's a trailer. And then what we get here is the best bonus feature and the only one worth picking this up for, quite frankly, unless you're in the market for a used car, which is the other film, Six Days in Roswell, which was also... was written or produced by Nygaard, but it was directed by Timothy B. Johnson. Now, what Six Days in Roswell is, it's kind of a spinoff mockumentary of Trekkies, kind of, because the lead star here, Rich Cronfield, who is the host, he is a known comedian and sketch comedy actor and plays one of, not even plays, he's playing himself in Trekkies as this hardcore Trek fan who builds like elaborate Trek stuff. Well, apparently they looked at him in there and were like, oh, but you're also like an actor and stuff. What if we took your character and kind of just added a dimension to him where he's also really into Roswell, but not as much as some. 
And we sent him out to the city of Roswell to their big alien celebration where, you know, there's parades and all that sort of thing. And every person who believes that aliens really are, are here and among us come for their thing and to sell their wares. But we do it all kind of a little bit in a more mocking way. Like Trekkies is very, is, is not mean spirited at all. It's actually kind of sweet. This is a little bit mean spirited. And I, I get you Trekkies one thing. These are people who are like, they know who they are and they, they just have a big fandom and they, most of them are like, I do this because I want the world to be a better place. Yeah. Here, these are a lot of unbalanced, crazy people. <laughs> the line in the sand is, it, does the person know that they're in on the joke? Right. And in Trekkies, for the most part, 98% of the time, the people that they're talking to are kind of, there's a sheepishness to like the hardcore fandom that's sort of like, yeah, I get it. I know this might seem weird, but this is my thing. So they, so they're very clearly in on, in on the quote unquote joke of it. So the, if the movie is mining humor from situations like, um, the juror who goes to court dressed like, uh, in a full Starfleet uniform or, yeah. Uh, or, you know, the, the woman who, uh, collects all the Brent Spiner stuff, like all those memorable character, quote unquote characters from Trekkies are all people who are like, they're comfortable in their own skin and they're in on the joke. They, they get it. They get that there's, they get that there's two audiences for the movie, that there's an audience that's going to go, oh, these people have really weird fandom. And there's another audience that's going to be like, these people are just like me. (laughs) Um, this is this punches down too much because the people aren't in on the joke. And it's the difference too. I started thinking really hard about why it rubbed me the wrong way versus something like triumph, the insult comic dog where triumph can be like, I've seen triumph go to like places like this, if not Roswell show up at places where there's a mass gathering of like some fringe interest and just eviscerate people. Yeah. And I can, I like that. And I think it's funny. And I think even with triumph, you're in on the joke because a dog that's called an insult comic is insulting you. And by the sheer label of that, you're in on the joke. So no matter how much, no matter how hard hitting the insults might be, you agreed to talk to the dog puppet who's famous for insults. Yeah. (laughs) Um, This is different because it's like somebody kind of walking around going, I like UFOs too. And then capturing people saying weird things. And honestly, not really revealing anything in the process. I think that I don't know how much of his own story or interest in aliens is true versus made up. And I, f- and so that automatically makes things a little shady. Cause it's like, I can't tell if he's sincere, just being funny. When he's, he talks about not. how much he wants to be abducted by aliens. He's not though. That's the thing is a yeah. lot of his dialogue was pre-scripted here. It was not in Trek. Trekkies was not pre-scripted at all. Reportedly. This was definitely, I'm playing a character. Mm. It's an exaggerated character. We have some idea going into these things, what our angle is going to be to try and make it funny. And I don't know so much as I would, I mean, I called it mean spirited. I don't know if it mean spirited is the right word. It's definitely more mocking than yeah. Trekkies is celebratory. This is not celebratory. It's never, this is never cruel per se. It lets people be themselves and if they bury themselves they're doing it all on their own without real prompting and to be fair this these are not i wouldn't compare the people here a lot of which are clearly in this just to sell shit to naive people yes base rocks and what have you but it is funny at points it is 
like it's a world that you're not familiar with and it is in the in a sense an honest look at it this is like they didn't set up the parade or any of that stuff this is just them filming these people and it's a weird world and it's fascinating to look at i just kind of wish they had done it without having to create a character to go investigate it yeah i agree with that i think that i think too that it's a lot of it's forgivable while you're watching it, and I don't think that the movie comes to any particular conclusion or insight, which makes the which makes the runtime of the movie harder to justify. Yeah. It's different when something like Trekkies can, somewhere in the editing or creation of the documentary, they can walk away and, and have a thesis and go, the thesis is this, Trek brings people all around the world together in different, unusual ways. Mm-hmm. With this, it's kind of just, there doesn't seem, there doesn't seem to be a clear through line as to what they're trying to convey by the time the movie's over, other than like, gee, aren't people who are interested in UFOs weird? And it's sort of like, it it doesn't have a stronger hook than that. So while it was quote unquote entertaining, like I, it kept my interest the whole time. And there were parts that I found really interesting. And we just missed that Roswell festival by like last year, we were there in July and we missed it by a matter of days. So the town was getting set up for it. So you were already seeing like a lot of the hype, like building towards it as we were heading out west. Um, I just, you know, I just wish that it had a stronger point to make um, than just kind of laughing at the people that were interested in going. So you've been to Roswell too. I, I have been. I forced my poor mom to take a trip with me like three hours <laughs> when we were in another city nearby. I was like, no, we're going to Roswell. I got to see this. And it's not an unfair portrayal of how chintzy and cheap and manipulative the city's take on this whole thing is. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of gross. You know, like the museum they go to in there is like, wow, this is like, in, it feels like it's in someone's backyard garage. I will know? say that I went to the museum in 98, which is a year, which I guess was the year before they made this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went again last year. And oh, wow. there was a huge difference in the quality of the museum last year. It felt last year. It felt more like an actual museum. Like, oh, okay. it, like it was still in the same building, had some of the same displays, but it also had a lot more like, like there were newspaper clippings that you walk up to and you push a button and you could hear it read the newspaper clipping. And like, it was, and, and more quote unquote evidence as far as like actual, um, they made their case better. Uh, actual yeah actual <laughs> it was um it it was more it was a more museum like scholarly experience than it was the first time i went which was a little which was chintzier cheaper had like yeah. you know ufo art showcases and bad dioramas yeah. and stuff and That's it's me about 10 years yeah. ago when i went it was it was pretty much that way i mean i guess i guess it's nice to hear that it has improved i mean i just don't i don't care that much yeah i don't really have a dog in the roswell fight i think it's it's an amusing you know footnote in history not in the context of them actually having come here, but in the context of how deeply people believe in it. Uh, I'm not saying one thing or another as far as it's true. I'm just saying I have doubts. But this Blu-ray, which comes with the two discs, they've both been upgraded in 4K. It's not a 4K disc, but it's just Blu-ray, but they both look as good as they're ever going to get. These are brand new remasters supervised by the producer Nygaard. Uh, Six Days comes with the audio commentary with Nygaard, with the director and the star, Rich Cronfield. And there's also a, a short, but well worth watching, the making of Six Days in Roswell, which is just sort of a behind the scenes, them joking around, them figuring out what they're going to do as they go. Um, 
probably more mean spirited than the movie themselves itself because they're actively laughing at these people in it. But well worth watching. I I do think Six Days in Roswell is ultimately worth watching. It's just if you're expecting something that has the same charm that Trekkies and Trekkies 2 did, well, you're going to be out of luck, I'm afraid. Let's move on to our next one, which is, and you did get a chance to watch To Your Last Death, correct? I did. Okay, good. This is a unusual thing in that it is a adult animated action horror film. I was not aware that's what I was getting into here. And I think a portion, like half of this premise is solid as shit. I think the way that the shots were chosen, uh, the way this is directed is actually pretty darn solid. I think there is a whole overall overlying text to deal with a bunch of like straight out of the pages of Marvel comics, but edgelordy game masters in space that are manipulating events. That's really dumb and didn't need to be here at all. Like it's, it's super, um, I'm trying to think of the comics company, you know, somebody who had published Danzig's comics, but something out of there. And it's got the weirdest Rod Serling voiceover in the beginning of the end by William Shatner that just has no business being in here at all. But, you know, it's got uh, like Morena Baccarin uh, plays the character, the game master, the lead villainess or game controller from outer space. Ray Wise not only voices the villain, but it's drawn exactly like him. The idea being is Miriam DeKalb, who is played here by Danny Lennon. She, her dad, Ray Wise, a super rich asshole. She and her brothers and sisters, basically when he was running for vice president, came out and said, he's a piece of shit. Here's a list of things that he did to us. He's going to ruin this country if he gets a chance to be that powerful and just totally tanked his career. So it's years later, he's dying of a brain aneurysm, uh, not aneurysm, a brain tumor or something. And he has called them all together who haven't seen each other for years and they're all totally fucked up in their own way from growing up with this guy. He's called them all together in his skyscraper, which has been closed for business for the day to do something. And so they all come there and they get up there and he's like, here's the deal. I hate you all. You ruined my life. Uh, You suck. And now my heavy, weird, crazy looking thugs are going to take you and one at a time, put you in these death machines I've built specifically for you and murder you so I can watch you die and laugh the whole time. Okay. So that happens. And then there's a flash and everything changes. And the game master, Marina Baccarin, comes in in a sexy suit and is like, hey, you know how all that shit happened to the one survivor of the whole thing, Miriam? Well, here's your chance to go back to the beginning of that night and you can fix it. You can change it now, armed with your foreknowledge of how that night is going to go. You can save your brothers and sisters and yourself. And she's like, uh, okay. Snap. She's back at the beginning. Oh, wow. This is real. And she has to go through this. Obviously, there's going to be a point of brothers and sisters like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I, to some degree, don't have a problem with her being able to go back and go through it again. I mean, there was a way to do that that kind of would have made a very compelling story and that works here. But it keeps getting more involved with these game masters like, no, no, we didn't really like the way that played out. Do it again. And it starts to get kind of annoying. This is tricky to review. Yeah. Um, and I think it's tricky to review because it's a movie <laughs> and it almost shouldn't be. I think that whatever the story idea that they had would have worked better in, as a comic or as a video game, especially yeah. as a video game. I think that that redoing, uh, kind of like going back and redoing things is very video gamey. I just feel like this 
uh, like cinema, <laughs> long form movies, uh, is not the format for this particular story, nor this particular type of animation, which is rigged animation, which gives it the marionette look that you might know from like Archer or even like South Park, where things are sort of, I imagine like a construction paper person held together with brads, so they but, move like. But this. even cheaper than that, it has yeah. a sort of. It kept reminding me of those motion comics. It, yeah, it's very motion comic, almost paper doll quality, um, and that is not interesting to look at for an hour and a half. The things that get away with it, like Archer and South Park, Tom goes to the mayor. Things that get away with that format get away with it because they're dialogue driven. Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff that they're saying is funny. This is primarily action oriented and very heavy on gore and fight scenes, which don't work. It's you're watching very crude marionettes. Now the drawings aren't crude. The drawings are fine. They look like yeah, they look like American indie comic, um, like something you'd see from like Dynamite or like Boom yeah. or something like that. Um, but the the ingredients don't work like it doesn't it does not come together into something that's necessarily like a really great movie and it it's weird that it kind of pains me to say that i think because i can recognize what something like this doesn't get made unless it's a passion project mm-hmm. something like this doesn't get made unless somebody is giving up nights and weekends to like rig this animation and like that sort of stuff so there's a real like on-screen understanding and maybe I'm sympathetic as an artist there's a real understanding of like how much effort would have gone into creating this to just kind of go yeah but it's not a, it's not that good of a movie and I I did find the story interesting I found the I found the setup intriguing um I had not watched a trailer not a nothing not a logline so you know upon the first twist it was like oh okay it had my, it had my, it, I had, was invested in the narrative. I just don't think that this, I don't, I don't think the delivery method is the right one. Yeah. I just don't think as a, as a film, I just don't think it works as a, as a film. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it being animated alone is a very odd choice because I think it would have been a better project is live action. It would have worked better. And part of that is because when you do animation and it's super gory, it's, just people drawing stuff. I, I I enjoy gore when it's live action to some extent because there is an artfulness to creating gore convincingly and shooting it convincingly and making it surprising. There's its own appeal. Here, you're just drawing something. Is it harder drawing gore, John, than it is drawing someone eating breakfast? It's not necessarily harder if the... Uh, like, I'm, I see a screenshot right here on my right-hand side, and it's like, it's a person flecked with blood. So yeah. you're just like... It's the adds like, red. <laughs> yeah, to the drawing. I, I my deal is just it's not it doesn't you can't execute if the animation was like I mean, it's not gonna be Disney quality. I get that, but yeah. I, I I would even be interested to see like how does gore in a well we've seen anime. So anime is a great example of stuff that has is gory and gorgeously animated. And we get the yeah. same kind of visceral, like, oh, that's really cool from like a really gory anime. This is so static and so stiff and so puppet-like that nothing reads as particularly impactful from like a cinematic standpoint. Like things always look kind of funky and weird, and people are always their bodies are always doing this to indicate that they're alive. Like yeah, yeah. so, if a person's just talking, 
They're talking like this the whole time. Like, like, is George Clooney the Bobby model for every single character here? Um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's a tricky film. I admire the work, and and it's funny, you know, it's so it, it's the rare thing that comes across our our desk where we're like, I really admire the work, I admire the artistry, I admire the effort. I I just don't like the movie. So here's my proposal. If you were to make this live action, mm-hmm. you took Shatner out of it entirely. <laughs> yeah. Right. First off, you make the game master character not look like they came from a, a Swedish black metal album cover. You made them dress just normally. They just look normal and maybe get black eyes or something when they say something like scary. You reduce the involvement of said game master to just a the point where they go, hey, I'm this person. I'm this I'm this interstellar thing or spiritual thing that is giving you the option to redo this you get one shot but you have the advantage of going in with what you know and then at the end appearing again and going like good job like well what are you gonna do are you gonna help me i did what i was gonna do good luck would have been cool and even a great premise for a franchise of like oh that's a cool idea of setting a franchise. oh everything went terribly wrong everyone died what if you got a chance to do it again but knowing what you know what you know from that that's cool i like a lot of the way the dialogue is written here i like the performances overall here uh the conceit of the gore and the action is good it just doesn't work as an animated thing I would like to see that alternate movie. I kept going, wow, that sure would have been good. It's too bad we ended up with this. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, we got, full disclosure, only sent a digital copy of this. The Blu-ray, which is coming out of this, comes with a redemption code to four hours of digital extras, including an audio commentary with the director, a Zoom panel with some of the stars, an interview with William Shatner, uh, interview with Morena Baccarin, Ray Wise, Bill Mosley, Danny Lennon, and Florence Hardikin, a behind-the-scenes reel, Comic-Con panels, an animation demo with the lead animator, unused artwork and animation, crowdfunding highlights, featurettes on the development of the film, and a lot more. So they put together a solid package. And honestly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be question anyone who really got into this, who this was their thing. Mm-hmm. I can totally say it. I know mm-hmm. people who are going to see this and go, that's cool. Yeah. I want to see more stuff like that. It just, like I said, it's too rough around the edges for me to succeed at what it's trying to do. It's definitely one of the more unusual releases I've seen this year. I think it's <laughs> funny that the uh, IMDb budget listing is $1. <laughs> Uh, I don't. I don't doubt that's accurate because yeah. there are act- Bill Mosley, for instance, is in it as well. So there are actors who got paid. So the budget's definitely more than a dollar. Um, but I would. I would still. I. I do think you're right. It, there is an audience for this. There's a. There's definitely like a cult audience for this. Um, and and it is one of the one of the more um, risky films I've seen in the in the past year or so. So. Well, I'm glad you're here today, Watson, because I have come to a conclusion in my examination of films, oh, as you know I do excessively and yes. at great length. I haven't gone through all the films ever made by man. I've looked at the 2009 film Sherlock Holmes and its sequel, which was made a few years later, Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows in 2011. And I've asked myself the question, while acknowledging that Robert Downey Jr. at that point was turning into one of the biggest stars in the world, something Robert Downey Jr. from 10 years ago himself would never have believed for a second was possible. Why were these films by then hot director Guy Ritchie not better than they are? Excellent question. 
Uh, hey, you know what? I did not know that this conversation was going to go this way. Um, <laughs> and I don't like these movies. Okay, you thought I was going to come in all like, hell yeah, Sherlock uh, Holmes my, on 4K now. Both movies on 4K. I think my perception is that these are pretty well regarded, like kind of, kind of not, people aren't over the moon, but I, I figured these are like, those are really good, like blockbuster movies that people enjoy. And I, I can't get into either one of them. And I had seen Sherlock Holmes before and didn't like it. And I watched it again for the show. I had not seen Game of Shadows, which I found almost exactly the same. Um, and there, I, my problem with them, I, have you, I assume you've read some Sherlock Holmes. Oh yeah. I think I may, I mean, of the original Conan Doyle stuff, I've definitely read it all at one okay. point when I was younger and I've revisited a few of them. I've read a lot of the, you know, other authors re-envisioning Sherlock Holmes. I actually just added to my wish list recently the Irene Adler books that someone else wrote, which is the idea that she went on and had her own series of adventures because she's also a genius. By the way, one of the biggest ways the sequel put its dick in the dirt in this series was just sort of writing off Irene Adler, who, for my money, played by... uh, um, Good Lord, what's her name? Rachel McAdams is a considerably more interesting character than either John Watson or Sherlock Holmes has here. I, you know, let's get into the synopsis real quick. We're basically okay. looking at the same movie twice, which is, uh, you know, Robert Downey Jr. as Holmes and Jude Law as Watson. And they're um, kind of a quasi-macho, like, contemporary character take on uh, Sherlock Holmes still in the period setting. Both films deal with uh, plots involving behind-the-scenes uh, power grabs from, like, hush-hush secret society mover, movers and shakers. Yeah. They they feel very similar. I think 2 has a little bit of an uptick in comedy and action, just from... That's what happens with sequels, so it has a little bit of an uptick in that regard. But I found them quality-wise to be pretty much the same. You know, my deal with these movies is that that confounds me is I like a lot of individual ingredients, but I but the main driving plots in both, and it's why I asked about the the books. I've never read any Sherlock Holmes, and I could not care less about um, the plots to either of these movies. Like. I, I like the characters. They're likable enough. I love the score. I, I think the score is great. I don't even mind the approach, like the sort of... Um, Hans Zimmer, by the way. Yeah, I don't, I don't even mind the approach to the material because I'm not a purist when it comes to any of this particular stuff. So I, I'm open to interpretations of Sherlock Holmes. But both movies, the plotting to me feels so arbitrary and like, it's just like, it's... <sighs> It shit happens, which is just, there's stuff just going on. Like, stuff is just happening and people are traveling places and having conversations about things that I can barely follow, I don't care about, have no real effect on any of the things that I'm watching, and that just carries out to the big finale. And I, I, <laughs> I don't like these. I just simply okay. don't like these movies. I I'm more kind to them than you are, I think, although I think the second one is a big step down for me. I think it's... 
I just don't think it ever iconically sets up Moriarty the way they should. I think Jared Hess was the wrong guy to play him. He also appears in the first one, but in the shadows, he's directing the stuff. I mean, Mark Strong is a, I mean, that guy's born to play villains. And every time he's the villain, I'm like, what, Mark Strong again? And then I'm like, okay, he's pretty good. I like Mark yeah. Strong. The first one also feels like it's kind of t- constantly tipping its hat to young Sherlock Holmes, a movie I, I haven't seen in forever, but I remember quite enjoying a lot that has sort of, uh, but is it supernatural and Satanists and stuff like that? I, I, I like all, I like the take of the first one of like, oh, is this guy, he's a dark wizard, but of course he's not. He's using science and Sherlock and Watson have to figure out how to convince people that this guy is in fact like uh, this mastermind behind the scenes using technology in order to murder people and get power. Mm-hmm. I kind of like it. I think that's stronger because of the addition of Rachel McAdams playing a bigger role who even then should have been much bigger in it. She's such an interesting character. Rachel McAdams is adorable in anything that she does and she's adorable here. And like I said, if they made a sequel, they should have just followed what happened next with her because it would have been much more interesting than going, oh, well now we got to do a film where Moriarty is actively the bad guy only will end it with Reichenbach Falls. What? Why would you do that? That's like the end of those characters. Like, that's a strange, fast move to go to. I don't know, man. I mean, I don't have problems with a lot of the changes to Sherlock Holmes. People at the time bitched a lot about like, what is this with him being able to fight? Well, I hate to tell you in the books, that whole thing with him like fighting and like being able to like pre-think every move, that's actually something that's not foreign to the books. He was an accomplished fighter he was somebody who had figured out how to be a good fighter through practice and through uh using his brain as part of it of the art form of doing it and it was an interesting way to illustrate that if maybe not a bit guy richied up too much uh-huh. there's a lot of guy richied up too much going on in both these films there's points where he's like "Ooh, look at this technology i have access to i'm going to use it even though it doesn't fit a period piece like this at all there's an impressive looking but not fitting the time period at all period where they're in the second one where they're being shot at with like gatlin guns in the woods and running and it's constantly like slow-mos and 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 uh freeze frames and and camera zoom-ins on things and oh look at that bullet and slow motion barely missing sherlock holmes and going into that tree as splinters fly out in a matrixy type effect that doesn't belong here what is that doing here we don't need that and it stops the movie dead in its tracks and makes you go, what is happening right now? The good news is I do think that the cast is actually, with the exception of Jared Hess, like I said, I normally like, but I just don't think fits here. The cast is actually pretty good and I really like them in these roles and they are making a third one like right now and Guy Ritchie ain't doing it. And they I are. think that might be, yes, they are. They are in the, in the midst of, I believe, post-production at this point. I had no and, idea. Yeah. And Guy Ritchie has nothing to do with it other than probably being like an executive producer or something. So my hopes is they're going to find something better to do uh, than the sequel, which, like I said, I thought I found pretty boring with the, the one exception of the introduction of Holmes's brother played by Stephen Fry, who's always great, Mycroft Holmes, who they don't do enough in with. They write out Irene Adler almost immediately, which is a terrible decision. I don't know what the fuck they were thinking. These are just meh movies with a couple high points and things about them that are intriguing enough that just make you wish that they had been better. Yeah, I don't even know. With them writing her out at the beginning of two, I was sort of like, couldn't they have just not had her? Yeah. Like, I don't know what the... I don't know what the upside was to like having a scene where they go, remember her, she's back so that she can leave 
Yeah, okay. Because she had a tie that was established to Moriarty in the first film. So if the second one's in Moriarty, you got to bring her into it. Uh, Plus they've yeah. got to have a, a woman to shove into the refrigerator as it were. Yeah. You know, anyway, uh, yeah, these are, th- there's no new extras, but they come with the, the last release Blu-rays, which have all the extras that came on there. These are, aren't essential uh, there. It is the best looking version of both films, but even so I was not totally blown away by the 4k. We just reviewed with Aaron, the Beetlejuice 4k release, mm-hmm. which is spectacular. Just a, the best. Oh, I picked it up and I haven't watched it. It's terrific. What a great upgrade. It's if you're a fan of that film, it is one that is well worth picking up. This one, even if you're a fan, I'm not sure I would go so far as to say it's well worth picking up. There's some spotty, uh, there's some good effects, but there's also some spotty, um, like kind of green screen composited stuff that, that look weird. It's a light, it's lighting stuff. Like the whole finale of one on the, um, scaffolding across the bridge the you know your eyes can tell the difference and it's one of the things that like we're going to see a big change now that they've got the the new way of filming that they use for Mandalorian we're going to see a big change in the way that a lot of that green screen stuff looks because stuff is going to be lit accurately because your yeah. eyes can tell and some movies have gotten it really really good i actually think Alita Battle Angel was one where outdoor lighting red is outdoors even though they weren't outdoors Mm-hmm. Um, this, there's a lot of outdoor lighting in both movies where it's like, you're not outside. Like I, I know what that looks like and this is funky, this is off. So there were, I think the effects work in both films is, is spotty and moment to moment. Some digital mats look great. Some digital mats don't. Some of the digital effects work, CG stuff looks fantastic. Other things that are as simple as a train car opens its door at night. And it literally looks like you're watching a movie from the 30s with, like, a moving thing behind it. It's, like, <laughs> really inconsistent. Um, so, yeah, and I, I don't know if that's because Richie hadn't worked on the scale of, like, this type of Hollywood blockbuster before. I, I always think back to the anecdote that Tim Burton told coming off of Beetlejuice into Batman and how he knew how to do certain effect shots because of working on Beetlejuice but that some of those just didn't work for Batman. So you get weird stuff like the animated Batman that turns on the top of the castle and you see his animated cape swirl or like mm-hmm. the stop motion helicopters and stuff like that, that were just, it was, he didn't want them to look bad. It was just a case of like, I literally didn't know how to get the effects that I wanted. I've been movie. saying for years, someone should do a full length documentary about that Batman and how it came to be, because it's a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. All the stuff, how it went through so many different directors hands first and so many different actors to play the role and all the shit that was going on behind the scenes and why stuff happened. And like there are points in the movie. You're like, why is this happening? This yeah. is so bizarre. It doesn't really fit, but we remember it kind of fondly or some of us do and why that shit was even in there in the first place and how it all ties into Beetlejuice, which it indeed does. But that's, movie hasn't been made yet we'll review it when it comes out and whenever that's gonna be let's talk about our next release which we've talked about before john and i in episode digital noise 248 the house by the cemetery where they did a 4k upgrade but they put it on blu-ray it looked really great this is an old lucio fulci italian film from 1981 but that was i don't even know if there is an italian dub available of these films but it's dubbed in english all italian films for a long period of time especially in the horror world there and the western world they're all 
dubbed even the italian versions if they're out there they're dubbed so there's no reason to be a purist <laughs> they're talking about but usually because they hire actors that speak eight different languages and no one is all they're not all speaking in the same language anyway so it's irrelevant but we talked about this then we talked about how you know a really solid upgrade it was how many great pictures there uh bonus features there were in here how cool it was that it came with a soundtrack disc well now much like all the other ones that are coming from blue underground from italian the italian lucio fulci they've been putting out several of these they just put out as well uh the, the new york what is it called the new york killer the new york, new york just, Ripper. yeah new york ripper we just reviewed it this one is also coming out officially in 4k for your 4k player and television set now i did not go back and rewatch this because this is just recently really we reviewed this thing and i was like i don't this is of the big fulci films probably my least favorite of them i still think it's well worth watching like, I still really in, enjoy aspects of this, but it's the one that, like, uh, I mean, yeah, it's got all the gore, maybe not even as much as some of the others, but it's never goes as bizarre as you want it to. Like, it never goes full beyond, I guess is the best way of saying it. Uh -huh. It's got cool sound stuff going on and score, of course. I, I believe it's Fabio Frizzi uh, doing the score here. I'll double check. No, it is not, actually. But good score, nonetheless. I don't know, man. I mean, did you rewatch this one? How does this hold up for you? I didn't rewatch the. I didn't rewatch it. I'd seen it so recently. Um, I instead, when when this ended up in the stack, I explored some of the special features that I didn't watch before. Um, so I watched the interview with uh, the guy who plays Bob, the little kid in the movie. Um, you know, now an adult talking about it, and, and it's interesting. I don't think I really know. I don't know anything about Fulci outside of his film work. Um, and the picture that they painted of him on the set of House by the Cemetery was that he was um, not a very nice guy. Yeah. And I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know anything about him other than that. And even even the kid that plays Bob speculated that he didn't know whether it was to create a, ser a sense of tension on set or if that's just the way his sets were, were just tense. <laughs> Um, but apparently he's very strict, very demanding, and not afraid to make children cry for real to get responses of tears mm. on camera. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, I, I like these kind of, you know, these are red shirt special features, and I think anybody that's interested in these kind of genre releases recognizes red shirt as a, a company that goes in and can find actors who literally have been like head down at their day job for like 25 years until red shirt comes calling. <laughs> um, yeah. They're like, is Bob, like there one day at the, at the potato factory, the yeah. buddy Bob is like, Hey man. So, uh, Steve was telling me you were in a movie once. Oh, yeah. fuck. <laughs> red, red shirt's great at getting those people, whether they're still on the scene or, you know, on the convention, whether they're still on the scene or on the convention scene or have faded altogether and have gone and lived a private life. They seem to be really good at bringing people back to talk about this kind of stuff. And a lot of the best or most surprising special feature documentaries I've seen have all been from red shirt where it's, I'm like, Oh wow. They got everybody from this forgotten, 80s horror movie like all back to talk about it no matter who the person was um and a lot of the features on here are like that so they're basically like talking head interviews but yep. if you're a fan of the movie 
you'll learn more about the making of the movie. I mean, I didn't know anything about it, so. And I believe that the this one does, in fact, come with a few new extra features on it. Uh, but I'm not, in, uh, I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure how it was split up. It does come with the previous Blu-ray disc here, but it does not come with the extra CD soundtrack. The other one does. So, I mean, it's in some way, it depends on what your needs are ultimately about, like, do I want the full booklet and the DVD with the CD version? Or do I want the one with the upgraded? And really, admittedly, like it does look better. I shoved in the disc just long enough just to scan it through and go like, okay, this is better. Like, no question. Like, which means more to you here? They're both they're both essentially the same release, just with slight improvements on either side. But hey, man, full credit to Blue Underground. Either way you go, this is much more love given to kind of an obscure Italian horror film than it probably even deserves, some would say. Uh, but, you know, hey, who am I to say? There are people who love it more than me. They also put out Zombie, which I, they gave just as much love to. And like, like we said, uh, New York Ripper. And I'm hoping they start that we get this treatment from Blue Underground with the Dario Argento films, many of which have never gotten this degree of loving treatment. And I don't mean Dracula for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah. I, I need to go back and revisit. I don't think I've, I don't think I've rewatched. Like I've seen zombie a number of times. My second favorite is probably gates of hell. Yeah. Um, and or I city and what's the other name? The city, city uh, of the living dead. Yeah. City of the living dead. And then, um, Beyond, I saw. I don't know if you remember back in the '90s, Tarantino released it theatrically. Oh, like I didn't know that. yeah, he cleaned it up and uh, and released it under his production arm. At that time, he did like Switchblade Sisters, and there were a couple other movies that um, that he that he took and released uh, in that during that time period. And I saw the Beyond at the Dolby before I ever moved to Austin. Huh. Um, went and drove out here to see it. Uh, I don't is think that I've seen that, it. Is that what made you move to Austin? No, kind of, sort of, but that's a longer story. I was uh, I was making trips back and forth pretty often at that point, and so decided to make it my home. Mm. Um, so it definitely had had a hand in it, but it wasn't like the reason. Um, yeah, it's been a while since I've revisited some of these. I don't think I've. It's been you know, City of the Living Dead. It's been years. It's been a while. I sh I, I need to go back and uh, and refresh myself. Uh, Arrow did, in fact, put out a really solid version of the Beyond several years back that a friend of mine in England sent me because they didn't put it out here. Hmm. But it's a, it's a beautiful set with lots of bonus features as well as Gates of Hell. Also a really good set of those. So if you're looking for copies that I don't think they were quite up to the standard that Blue Underground has been putting out with these, the ones they've gotten a hold hmm. of, but it was pretty close. So I would expect to see somebody re-releasing those before too long. But for our last film of this particular session with John and I, we're going to take a look at another 4K upgrade of a, some would say classic movie, some would say deeply overrated movie, and that is The Goonies. Man, there are people who fucking love this movie, who live and die by it to this day. There are people who will not shut up about, including the cast, about fighting to make a sequel to The Goonies. And I'm like, well, technically there was a sequel. There's a Japanese video game that came out like many years ago called The Goonies 2, which follows up after the events of the film. But nobody wants to hear me when I start doing that. This was directed by Richard Donner, legendary director. Director, of course, uh, who did uh, conspiracy uh, theory? <laughs> I like conspiracy theory. Damn it! <laughs> Lethal Not Weapon, Superman, the movie. 
He yeah, has a couple. Exactly. He has a couple hits under his belt. Just a couple. A, uh, screenplay by Chris Columbus, who ended up basically being the guy who tried desperately to step into John Hughes' shoes, but never completely succeeded. And produced by Spielberg. And as with anything that was produced by Spielberg at this period of time, it had Spielberg's name <laughs> splattered all over it. And like, I thought this was a Spielberg movie when it came out. I thought Poltergeist was a Spielberg. Well, Poltergeist might have been a Spielberg movie, but nonetheless, you see what I'm saying, right? And oh. it had that Spielberg feel. Amblin Entertainment, anything they touch kind of had that feel. And while I certainly say, and I've rewatched this movie many times, that it's not one of the, it's a well-remembered film that is not as strong as perhaps you remember it being. I, every time I see it, I feel like I get a little bit less from it. It becomes a little more dated, a little more awkward, but there's so much cool stuff that is in fact in here that influenced a shit ton of movies to come after it. I I can't even count how many times we just reference the Goonies based on stuff that happens in this film as a bunch of kids come across a doubloon from 1632 and an old treasure map that supposedly leads to a famous pilot, one-eyed pirate, one-eyed Willie's hoard, which is supposed to be hidden somewhere in their area. So these kids all with their own separate sort of distinguishing characteristics like Chunk, who's overweight, unfortunate name, Data, once again, unfortunate, the Japanese kid is the one who's really good at math <laughs> and mouth, who is kind of the obnoxious, obnoxious one of the group all get together and kind of with the help of the older kids in the neighborhood, Josh Brolin in an early role for him. And and I am blanking on her name, Carrie Green as sort of the love interest. And then Martha Plimpton, the young Martha Plimpton, all end up on this trip, finding out that a local group of Italian sword. They're not mafia. I don't know what the fuck they're supposed to be. A gang, the Fratellis, which ended up becoming the name of a pretty good band, <laughs> are themselves standing in the way of them finding this treasure. And it turns into a race against the Fratellis as they negotiate series of old pirate laid traps and caverns and really cool stuff like that to find their way to said treasure that, of course, because you never get to in these kind of films, they don't get to keep. Spoiler. <laughs> I've gone back and forth on this one over the years. I I think what I've discovered is that, like, a lot of the stuff that I saw in childhood, there's, like, a weird threshold of I'm, I watch it and then go, oh, that wasn't as good as I remember, or that wasn't very good. And then I watch it again, and I'm like, oh, that's it's pretty good. And I think Goonies kind of went through that for me. Never ending story that happened for me where it'd been years since I'd seen it and then sat down to watch it and was like, mm, I don't see why I even liked this. Then all of a sudden something else kicked in and I, and I, when I saw it again, <laughs> came back around. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because like when you see it as an adult, it reframes it. And now that it's reframed, you can now take it on its own terms. That may be the explanation as to why. Hmm. Um, I mean, I have distinct memories of seeing this in the theater sitting in the front row with uh, a Ziploc bag of trail mix that my aunt mom had given to my cousin and I, because they didn't want to buy concessions <laughs> um, and watching Goonies from the front row um, of the Lowe's theater on uh, right next to Baybrook mall in Houston. Um, and uh, I, I have, so I have that childhood tie to it, like the vivid memories of going and seeing it and talking about it after. And, um, and it has kind of just continued to live on and on and on. Um, I'm not even sure 
Like, I don't even think I've ever looked to see what the original box office take was. Like, how big was it versus how big was its was its cultural footprint? Because it made 124 million in the box office at a budget of 19 million. Oh God, that's way profitable and adjusted for inflation. That's pro- that probably puts it at about 250, 275, I think. Um, which is that's huge. That's a massive hit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like this. I think it's. I think that kind of. The last time I watched it, I was like, this is very much just a, a just a boys adventure movie. It's it's for young boys, and that's fine. It's okay for stuff to be for certain people. I think this is a movie f- made for little boys, and it ties into um, a lot of things of, like, little boys being, like, you know, our main character played by Sean Astin being, like, a leader, assuming, like, a leadership role, being smarter than the adults. Um, going on an adventure with their friends. Like, there's a lot of wish fulfillment fantasy stuff for young boys in this movie that um, I think the movie does a, does a pretty good job with. Um, it's rougher around the edges. I think, you know, it's where we are more... PC's like the wrong word, but there's stuff in it that I... that. Um, bothers me more now than it did when I was a kid. I think this the stuff about um, the housekeeper is almost it grows increasingly racist. Uh, yeah. The more that I've seen the movie over the years, there's, so yeah, there's this, this thing has light racism all the way through it, but it was just that it's never really mean spirited. It was the kind of racism that was like like microaggression racism it's, but it's, it's racism constant. born of a it's racism born of like a specific like upper middle class white person point of view where everybody else is just other like it's yeah. and you see that happen a lot in 80s movies but to the degree that it happens in here there's like a whole sequence with the clueless housekeeper being mistranslated <laughs> by a child <laughs> And it and it's played for laughs, but I don't. It becomes less funny the older I get. Um, yeah. I, you know, I really love this movie, but my love for it is. Um, I think some people pine for this movie. They love it in a different way than I do. And if I were comparing this to like love that I've had in a relationship, like this is the kind of love that I had for a good ex, who like I still th- maybe think back every now and then and be like, she was really nice. And that's about, like, the end of it. Do you know what I mean? But I think there's some people that still are sort of, like, pining, like, I wish they still made, you know, movies like Goonies, or I wish there was another Goonies, or they should, the whole cast should get together again. And I'm like, I'm fine leaving Goonies where it lived. I'm fine with my memories of, like, sitting in the front row and watching it on the big screen, and I have it as a movie that I can revisit if I want to tap into those feelings. But that's kind of where my fandom sort of lies. I don't... You know, as far as stuff from my childhood, God, I, Chris, I'm surrounded by shit right now. Like, I've got, like, Soundwave over here. I've got, like, this little tiny He-Man. So, like, I'm surrounded by this stuff from childhood that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't own any Goonies stuff. And that probably means something. I don't know what it means, but that probably means something. 
I do actually have a Goonies thing that I've had for since 2010, which was their 25th anniversary Ultimate Collector's Edition on DVD, which was this huge deluxe set that had a Goonies board game packaged inside of it. Oh, and I have the later release Goonies bo- proper board game. I got that, too, which we won at South by Southwest one year. You know, I still haven't played it. It's mainly card based. You know, those type of games It looks like a board game, but then you open it. And it's really just a card game. Yeah, it's kind of one of those. But that 25th anniversary Ultimate Collector's Edition came with a huge amount of shit in it. Now, this doesn't have that. In fact, like in terms of bonus features, it's just I mean, it's got the Blu-ray that is has the bonus features from that. Right. Which is like a pop up track, a cast audio commentary, a vintage featurette, some deleted scenes, a Sydney Lauper music video. There's nothing new here at all is that. However, there is a alternate version of this you could get, which is the gift set, which comes in like a little a treasure chest, which is kind of cool. Um, and it comes with like the Goonies map in it and a patch that's embroidered and buttons that say like, hey, you guys and Goonies never say die. The you know, shit like that. I mean, like if you're like one of those people that John's talking about, that's like just cannot let the Goonies go or just and we know them. We all you all you know, someone who is that person for the Goonies like I'm that person for Buckaroo Banzai. I can't say anything, man. Like they put out like the gift set Banzai and had like the headband and membership card. I'd pick that shit up immediately with no qualms. But this, I'm like, I'm fine with the 4K. And it is a 4K upgrade. There is no question that it is the best image yet that we have of this. The soundtrack is, it's a different sound audio track, but it's a basically the same as the previous Blu-ray edition that came out. It's, it's fine. You know, this isn't a movie I need a super wonderful copy of anyway. I don't know. It doesn't really pop. It's all overcast. There's a few scenes that, that are poppy during the very end. But, I mean, this is acceptable. Yeah, I thought the 4K itself was... it. You know, there's certain 4Ks that you start to get into this conversation of, like, you walk a really fine line on... I'm not a super tech head. There are people who watch DVDs and Blu-rays and 4Ks with, like, that tech thing turned on that shows like the way the bit rate compression and all that kind of stuff. It's like, I'm not, I'm not messing with any of that, but I know what DNR looks like digital noise reduction where, you know, things that are shot on film have almost imperceptible little dots of, of color that basically kind of wiggle and move and make up the image that you see because of the chemical process. And DNR basically goes in and, and tries to smooth that, as flat as it can be. And I found that the Goonies transfer probably, at least to my eyes, tipped heavily more into DNR. Their Mm. skin especially looks um, shiny and poreless. Now, you don't mind the DNR so much in environments and sets where it's like you're in the big pirate ships and they're darkly lit and there's like maybe light coming down and, and a lot of that stuff still looks really gorgeous. But the evidence for for my eyes of somebody who's like I don't consider myself like that big. I'm I'm interested in it, but I'm I'm not as big of a tech head when it comes to AV stuff. If my <laughs> eyes could still pick up like this is a little on the DNR side, then it you know I don't know if you're a purist if you'd necessarily want to get rid of your uh, your Blu-ray if that has a stronger film grain. I haven't seen the Blu-ray in a while, so I can't remember if it does, but. Point is, the the 4K was not a relevatory 4K experience. Sometimes you see yeah. stuff in 4K and you're just like, holy crap, I've never seen this movie this way before. Goonies was like, very good and very strong, but 
not it, it you know get it if you need it but it's i don't feel like it was uh it was one where if you already own it especially in multiple formats i don't know that i felt like it was uh you know, I don't. Feel, I felt like the 4K was not strong enough to be the cell on its own. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, it's it's the newest version of the Goonies. If you find it for a reasonable price and you want to own a good copy of the Goonies, this will probably be as as good as the Blu-ray version that's out there is. But if you have 4K TV, a slight upgrade. I don't know. It's not. Are you it's saying not it's a, good enough for you? It's good enough for you. It's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> good enough for chris uh, yeah 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 it's fine Anyways. i'll re- i right. will replace my previous edition copy with this edition copy and not feel a strong sense of loss that's all <laughs> all right well we've reached the end of the show which means for our two show like bing bang we got to pick a single pick of the week for them which i leave up to john although i've got strong a feeling of what it's going to be already you know really honestly i think out of everything we talked about the one thing that people absolutely must see is sherlock holmes too just <laughs> uh no for me it's a it's a toss-up and i really so i think I, I there's like a stealth choice here so there's like the pick and then there's like a stealth pick the pick is sunset boulevard mm-hmm. that's the pick like sunset boulevard is my pick of the week my kind of like under the radar stealth pick of the week is the cameraman. Mm-hmm. Um, I I really do um, I really do think that it's a a I, I think it's worth seeing um, and and it's worth exploring the special features as well if you have any interest in the early days of filmmaking. Yeah, but to me that's like the caveat is like you kind of already have to be interested in X Y and Z. Get the cameraman. Well, I think I'm going to go with the cameraman, if only because literally the other one, Sunset Boulevard, is a straight reissue. Mm-hmm. It's not even a re-release. There's nothing added. It's a reissue of the previous Blu-ray that came out several years beforehand, whereas the cameraman is a brand new thing, yeah. you know? So well, I think we're going to go with that. And there are probably people like me. I mean, I bring up Sunset Boulevard, too, because I I just hadn't seen it. It was a blind spot. And so especially yeah. if it's a blind spot, it's, it's worth it. You should see it. And I would say as well, like if you really haven't, as you said, when we were reviewing in our previous episode, the cameraman, if you really don't have much experience with silent film and you're looking, what's a good starting point? This is not a bad starting point. You know, Keaton is equally as important as Chaplin was. He just Chaplin got remembered better for some reason. Well, we know now why, because the set explains it because MGM fucked him. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up Digital Noise. Thank you to my co-host, John Golson, and uh, his cat, which is in the upper corner, just a tiny bit of the frame. It looks like the boom mic in a movie when it's dropping into the oh, frame. Oh, yeah. I didn't see that. He hopped up there to go to sleep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not sleeping, really. He's kind of just rotating around like a like a, like a a monster that's going to slowly evolve its tendrils out and shoot into you like the thing or something. I don't know where my brain is going. Today. I would still... He, he's going to be sad... Like you can see boxes and stuff behind me in the in the stream, and it's I I have recently moved in. Um, the only reason this room isn't situated is because I've got a bed that arrives tomorrow, and I've got to put that bed in here. When that bed, when I choose where that bed goes based on its size, is when that stuff settles out. So nice. feel bad for the cat because that may be the last time he gets to sleep up in the top of yeah, the yeah. But the cat's like gonna be like, ooh, bed. <laughs> no, that's true too. Though they will have an alternate. That's true. There you go. It's my bed now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. And we'll be back with more digital noise very soon.